0: The war in Ukraine has severe consequences beyond its borders.
1: Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine, and that new disruption pushed up the cost of living practically everywhere. You're already seeing fuel pricing spike, food pricing spike, cost of shipping spiking.
0: Ninety days have passed since the Russian invasion started. So let's take stock of what's happened so far. There have been thousands of civilian casualties. Ukraine has admitted heavy losses in the East, but says Russian casualties are far higher. A refugee crisis. The country of Poland is still struggling under the weight of the Ukraine refugee crisis, and the humanitarian demands are simply overwhelming. And global energy and food crises.
1: Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. The conflict in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia have led to another surge in the cost of oil and gas.
0: Away from the front lines, the war is also playing out during diplomatic negotiations. Finland and Sweden are now applying to NATO, the military alliance that links North America with Europe. It's a strong sign of unity. But at the same time, the differences between the countries supporting Ukraine are starting to show. So will alliances help to end this war? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To break down the diplomacy behind the war, I'm talking to Al Jazeera's diplomatic editor, James Bays. He's been with the channel since it launched, and for most of that time, he's covered wars.
1: And then was transferred to a very different beat, no longer covering war, but supposedly covering peace. Sadly, there's been a real lack of that in recent years.
0: So, James, as someone who's been covering diplomacy for a long time now, you have seen governments walking out of meetings where countries' futures are decided. You've seen wars. You've seen subsequent discussions about aid. What is it about Russia's war on Ukraine that stood out to you? Has anything surprised you?
1: Oh, it certainly surprised me. Having covered those countries in the Middle East that have had upheaval in recent years, having covered Libya, Yemen, Syria, the refugee level, start there. The refugees are being looked after, they are being welcomed across Europe. We've also seen, I think, from the Western nations a unity that we hadn't seen in any of those previous wars. We've seen a level of uh, unprecedented sanctions and military aid for Ukraine. Remember, the rebels in Syria, they were ordinary people peacefully protesting in Syria at the beginning, and they were asking for help, military help, and they never got it.
0: But those differences between conflicts like Syria and Ukraine are determined by the conversations happening behind closed doors. And James knows that well. He was just in Germany covering the G7 meeting, and now he's in Brussels interviewing diplomats about the steps being taken by the European Union to end this war. Let's dive into NATO, because in the wake of Russia's invasion, both Finland and Sweden have announced they want to join NATO. Why? And why is this significant?
1: Public opinion in both countries has changed really significantly. And that is entirely due to the invasion of Ukraine. Public opinion in the countries before this, there was not a majority in either country. In recent days, we've had a vote in the Finnish parliament and 188 members of the Finnish parliament in favor and just eight against. It really is a a, a radical change in the position of both countries.
0: James says that change is radical, because Finland and Sweden could have joined NATO back in 1949, during its creation. But they opted to be neutral, and later, when they became part of the EU, switched to non-aligned countries.
1: And that has been their position for so long, particularly for Finland, which has a very long border with Russia, a border of over a thousand kilometers. They felt this was the best way throughout that long Cold War to keep themselves safe. And the Russians appreciated the Finnish capital Helsinki is where many of the Cold War negotiations between East and West took place. The Russians accepted it as a neutral location. But all of that has changed after the attack on Ukraine.
0: So what are the chances of Finland and Sweden being successful, and and how long would it take?
1: Normally, it takes a bit of time for a country to join NATO. I think this is certainly being fast-tracked. The two countries have made their own decisions very, very quickly to join. The problem right now is the problem of Turkey. Turkey is a very specific issue here. It accuses, President Erdogan accuses both countries of harbouring terrorists.
0: Turkey has focused on two groups that it considers terrorist organizations. The Kurdistan Workers' Party, also known as the PKK, and supporters of Fethullah Gulen, a Muslim cleric whom the Turkish government blames for a 2016 military coup attempt against President Erdogan.
1: He would like both countries to extradite some people who are in Finland and Sweden, and they haven't done so.
0: Last week, Turkey blocked the start of talks about the inclusion of Finland and Sweden in NATO. However, James says that NATO diplomats think Turkey will eventually agree after negotiations.
1: Certainly from the US, from the White House, they're saying that they still remain confident they're going to have fresh negotiations with the Turks to persuade Turkey to change its mind because Turkey does have to change its mind. NATO is a club where all the members have to agree on a new member.
0: James, it's interesting that we're hearing so much about NATO these days because we probably saw even more NATO headlines when Donald Trump was president of the United States. He claimed that the U.S.'s contributions to NATO were a waste of money and that other NATO members weren't paying their dues.
1: I'm going to tell NATO, you got to start paying your bills. The United States is not going to take care of everything.
0: Fast forward to today, and we see NATO potentially expanding. So would the inclusion of Finland and Sweden make NATO stronger?
1: I think definitely these are very sophisticated armies. They have very specialist skills, particularly Finland with its skills in in Arctic warfare. Finland will have the biggest artillery force in all of NATO. But Sweden also has as aircraft. These will be some of the biggest armies to join NATO. And you're right. It's a time when NATO will tell you the world is in crisis and NATO is in crisis. But actually, NATO is seeing a resurgence uh, in the last couple of months. If you rightly go back a couple of years when President Trump was in office, he, at one summit, it really looked like he was questioning whether NATO should exist and whether the US should be a member. And of course, if the US was to pull out of NATO, which some who were there say he was close to doing, then that really would have been the end to NATO. 23 of the 28 member nations are still not paying what they should be paying and what they are supposed to be paying for their defence. It was only a few years ago that the French president, Emmanuel Macron, said NATO was brain dead. I know that my my statements created some reactions and shake a little bit, a lot of people. I, I, I do stand by. I think what's happened is NATO has gone back to its original mission. If you look at the lifespan of NATO, it started after World War II and it sprung up in the Cold War, the US and its allies clubbing together to respond to Russia as a defensive alliance.
0: The cornerstone of NATO is the principle of collective defense, which means that an attack against one ally is considered an attack against all allies.
1: And that was its mission all the way until 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall.
0: James says that after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a serious debate about NATO's future. But the alliance continued to expand.
1: And then, of course, it got involved in two missions which I think were pretty disastrous for NATO. One was Afghanistan, and clearly that can't be seen as a success for NATO, because they left and handed over to the very people that they'd been fighting all that time, the Taliban. And the other one was the NATO bombardment of Libya. Gaddafi fell, many Libyans were happy, but what came after was civil war, crisis, uh, and real hardship for the people of Libya. And I think NATO's reputation was pretty tarnished if you stopped the clock at the end of the last year, the Secretary General of NATO was only going to have one more year in office. And I think you'd have looked at it and said, he really didn't have a very good time. I mean, it, he, history won't judge him very well. The alliance is not going to come out very well out of this. And maybe the alliance isn't going to survive. But of course, the alliance now has changed.
0: Back in February, Russia's President Vladimir Putin justified his operation against Ukraine as a preemptive tactic to stop NATO's endless expansion, his words. But the opposite appears to be happening. So was this a miscalculation by Putin?
1: Certainly, that's how Western leaders see it. They say that certainly the NATO Secretary General, Jan Stoltenberg, repeatedly says what he's got now with two new members joining is more NATO and certainly what he's also managed to do is for now unify those NATO allies and unify Ukrainians around one president. Remember before this war Ukrainians were not very unified there were all sorts of political divisions in that country.
0: What has Russia's reaction been to Finland and Sweden's announcement?
1: We've had lots of different uh, reactions, lots of warning shots coming from Russia. The deputy ambassador of Russia to the UN making all sorts of um, claims that the Finns and Swedes need to watch out what could be around the corner. When Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, has spoken about this, his comments have not included some of those warnings. So no one's really clear. I think it's very unlikely, though, that Russia would stage some sort of attack against Finland and Sweden.
0: So let's talk about another regional body now, and that is the European Union. The EU is spending $520 million in military aid to Ukraine, bringing the bloc's contribution to about $2 billion. At the beginning of March, the Ukrainian president asked the European Union to prove that they were with Ukraine. So it's been more than 11 weeks since that statement, since that request, and billions of dollars later. Will the tap just keep flowing, or do you see an end to this?
1: It's amazing how much money has been spent. Military aid is not something the EU normally does. And the fact that the EU is buying weapons, the fact that Germany is on board with this, these are changes that I don't think anyone would have predicted before February. They've done so much What else can they do? How much more can they spend? And the first cracks are beginning to show. The first crack is Hungary. Hungary has a problem with the latest uh, package of sanctions.
0: This is the sixth package of sanctions. With this one, the EU wants to impose a broad Russian oil embargo. But to do that, it needs unanimity from the 27 member states. Some European countries are heavily dependent on Russian oil. Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Hungary. And they were offered a delay in joining the EU embargo. However, Hungary is the only country that refuses to accept this package of sanctions. This has generated headlines, accusing the Hungarian government of holding the EU hostage.
1: The Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban is standing firm, and he could block it, And if you block it, then they're going nowhere else. They've had five packages of sanctions. There won't be a sixth and there probably won't be a seventh. So it is a difficult time for the European Union. Everyone is asking what Mr. Orban wants. Does he want money because his country relies so much on Russian oil and can't afford to get its oil from anywhere else? Or, and some observers say this, Mr. Orban has been known as the most friendly European leader to Vladimir Putin and you could argue that during the opening weeks of the war he was somewhat constrained because he was in the middle of an election campaign so he didn't want to rock the boat he didn't want to object to the earlier sanctions because it wouldn't necessarily have helped his re-election and perhaps now he's safely in power some say he is reverting to being much more favorable to the Kremlin.
0: James, this dependence on energy from Russia does not only involve Hungary or other countries like Slovakia, it also involves Germany, where you just were. Germany is still being provided with 55 billion cubic meters of natural gas a year by Russia. You were in the place where the pipeline ends. So are sanctions affecting that relationship? What is Germany's plan?
1: Well, I think Germany, which as ever, is one of the countries leading the way in the EU, quite deliberately has gone for a sixth package of sanctions that goes to the energy part of this, which is clearly the key. That's where Putin's getting his money. But it targets the oil rather than the gas, because the reality is there is no way they can turn off the gas right now. They'd be turning off the economic production in Germany and much of Europe. So the gas for now, they're leaving. But the oil, they think, is a way of hitting Putin further. Clearly, they've got to find a way, if they want to uh, go through with what they've said, of isolating Putin and eventually they've got to go find a way to cut all of the energy imports. But gas is going to take a long time.
0: So, energy and gas is one consequence of this. Another consequence is food. You recently met the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell. You had a sit-down interview with him. And he was worried about one thing in particular, and that's grain.
1: The, the looming food crisis is a crisis created by the war. And we need to take thousands of tons of wheat out of Ukraine.
0: What's happening there?
1: Yeah, there is a big, big problem, the, the effects of this crisis, because Russia and Ukraine both supply so much grain, so much of the world's food supplies. This is a problem that's not affecting people just in the immediate region of the war. This is affecting people globally. So what they're trying is to get the grain out other ways. Certainly the EU have launched something they're calling solidarity lanes. These will be the rail lines, and the idea is the rail lines will then flow uh, into the EU and get it to points where it can be distributed around the EU, and then around the world.
0: So you were just in Germany covering get more diplomatic efforts, the G7s meeting. You sat down with Ukraine's foreign minister, who told you he was there to get what Ukraine needs to stop
1: Putin. I believe it's a mutually beneficial relationship because the Russian aggression is not aimed only against Ukraine.
0: Is that true? Is it mutually
1: beneficial? Well, certainly the Ukrainian argument is that if they are not supported, if they are not the ones to stop Putin, then he will move further. You look, for example, somewhere like Moldova, and the argument is that if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, then he will support those ethnic Russians who don't want to be part of Moldova. The same situation applies in Georgia. And certainly the Ukrainian view is that you've got to help us because this is a battle that Europe is fighting and we just happen to be the front line.
0: We recently saw Avril Haines, the U.S. Director of National Intelligence,
1: say that President Putin is preparing for a prolonged conflict in Ukraine during which he still intends to achieve goals beyond the Donbass.
0: I know that you spoke with Ukraine's foreign minister about the endgame. How long could this war last?
1: I think they know, and I think the Western supporters of Ukraine know, It could go on for a very long time. And what the Ukrainians will tell you is that this war didn't start in February. They'll tell you that, in their view, the war started in 2014. It just was a new intensity, the invasion and the the attempt to take Kyiv in February. But they've been fighting a a lower intensity war since 2014. First, when uh, Putin took Crimea and then the continual fighting in the Donbass. My view on how long the war will last really is that it depends entirely on one man, Vladimir Putin. It's his war, he launched this invasion, he then changed the battle plan from the original plan when it failed, the storming of Kyiv, to a new war uh, in the east, in the Donbas, to try and take areas in the Donbas. That is not going to plan either.
0: On the other side, James says that Western allies and Ukraine might start to show some differences in what they'd like to see
1: as the outcome. Just look at the recent call between Vladimir Putin and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Mr. Scholz said in that call his number one priority was an immediate ceasefire. He wanted a ceasefire now. Well, it's interesting. When you speak to the Ukrainian foreign minister, as I did recently, or you listen to President Zelensky, they don't say that. And they're very adamant that they want to retake all of the territory of Ukraine. They will not accept a scenario where the Russians retain footholds in parts of Ukraine. And I asked the German foreign minister at a recent news conference about this. And she said, well, we're simply following what the Ukrainians want. But actually what the German position and the Ukrainian position are are different. And, and I think there is potentially a conflict behind the scenes that we're not seeing there.
0: When you're covering a war of words and summit after summit, sometimes it can feel a little futile. I asked James if he ever felt things were pointless.
1: If you're talking about the quest for peace, it often feels that things are pointless. Most of the diplomacy that the Western nations have been conducting on Ukraine has not been with the goal of peace. It's been with the goal of trying to get Vladimir Putin to rethink and trying to support Ukraine so that it's not defeated by Russia. It's more been rallying the troops, getting the resources together, getting the weapons together, rather than any effort at peace whatsoever.
0: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nay Alvarez, with Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliai, Amy Walters, Ruby Zaman, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Al and Adam Abu Gad are our engagement producers. We'll be back on Wednesday.